Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, and I'm going to share with you a part of the Christmas story because the Christmas story, in terms of the way we think about it, is actually covers a long period of time. It doesn't actually just cover the birth of Christ. So that whole nativity sort of scene that we see in our culture is not just about the birth of Jesus on that day. Um, so we have the shepherds coming. Um, or Annalie just mentioned the Magi, they come. Well, that was some time later. And so all, all the stuff that we sort of cram in culturally to Christmas is, is actually covering an extended period of time, not just over a day or a few days. And so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2 because Luke records a number of stories that are not in the other Gospels. And he tells one particular story about a man called Simeon who's, um, who's sort of serving in the temple and he actually takes the infant baby Jesus in his arms. And uh, if you are here last week, I know Charles preached out of this passage again, but I'm going to talk about something a little bit different that I think we learn intentionally from Luke in the way he writes the account and a lesson that we learn from Simeon. And so I'm actually going to talk to you about how to wait for God. Now, I don't know about you, I don't like waiting. You know, you sit at traffic lights, you know Plenty Road? Who waits on Plenty Road? Come on. Let's feel, feel each other's pain. You sit on Plenty Road for 40 minutes and you go, what, one and a half kilometres, right? Um, nobody likes waiting, but here's the tension. So whether you're waiting on traffic at the doctors, whether you're waiting at the shopping centre because it's packed over Christmas and holidays and sales, whether you're waiting for God to act on something that you know God has already spoken to you about, life is actually full of waiting. But the tension of waiting, who likes it? Does anybody here like waiting? I don't like waiting. I'm not very good at waiting. I don't know about you. I get very impatient and frustrated. In the past, you know, as I was reflecting around some of the things that I've had to wait years to see the fulfilment of or to, something that I felt God has spoken to me about and they've never come to pass over a number of years and I've waited year after year and I've asked God, I keep coming to him in my conversations and prayer about when, when will this happen? And the tension of actually sitting in that waiting, well, that's part of the Christmas story. And so Luke wants us to know that even though we all experience moments of waiting, but God always comes through. That's what Luke wants us to know when we read this story. It's really about, well, how do we wait for our God to answer our prayer? How do we wait for God to actually turn up um, and intervene on our behalf or to fulfil a promise we felt he spoke to us about or someone had a word over our lives or, or we know that God has given us some guarantee and yet we don't see it? How, what do we do in the tension of the waiting? And I think all of us here understand or at least We've had moments where we've had these experiences of waiting and we're not sure what to do. Um, I know for myself, wrongly at times, I've tried to manipulate circumstances to make things happen. And we see plenty of Bible stories where that happens. You know, King Saul, who's not happy with God's answers, forced to wait. And so he manipulates. He actually sees certain people that he's not supposed to talk to. He consults with a, a seer of, you know, effectively demonic forces. Now, we may not do that in specifics, but what we do is other things to sort of manipulate or try and get God to hurry up. And so 
well, I don't know, does anybody here feel like you're waiting for something right now from God? Like you've been in the process for a while of waiting for something? Just put your hand up. I want to see how many people. So I think, I mean, I think you're like me. I'm waiting for something right now. I've been praying for something in my family life year after year and I'm still waiting. So what do we do while we're waiting? Because we don't want to do, you know, the wrong thing. We don't want to sort of manipulate God or, you know, I, probably like you, I know many other people that are actually, oh, we've got to release the kids. I'm getting, I'm getting a wave. Are there any children in the, in the room here? Well, you're not a child, Jordan. Well, actually, no, we won't go there, Jordan. No. So I'm just getting a, a sign there to release the children. So if you have any children that have not already gone to Uni Hill Kids Church, you're not going to offend me. Stand up now and take them out. You'll just miss the next three minutes. So just release the kids. You can go now. Uh, so, like, in the waiting, we can manipulate and control things and we don't, well, we start acting like we're God. That's what I think we do. Sometimes it's not intentional or, like I was just about to say, other times some of the people that I've journeyed with life, Christian life with, over many years are no longer in Christianity because they couldn't wait any longer. They get so frustrated with God and in the end... They almost blame God for not acting as if they have the right to tell God what to do. And then they, it's like a, a relationship that becomes very dysfunctional and they spend less and less time with God because of the frustration or the hurt or the way they interpret, does God still love me? Is God really listening to me? Now, we all have these sort of ranges of emotions and feelings from time to time about what we do while we're waiting for God to answer us or act on our behalf. The Christmas story actually comes from a, a very specific period in, in Israel's history of 400 years of waiting. Now, the, the, the Luke's, Luke's text doesn't tell us that, but historians and Jewish rabbis and theologians, they talk about this, this period in Israel's history from the last prophet in the Old Testament that actually went to the nation and spoke to the whole nation about what God's covenant with them and what they needed to do to maintain the, relation, the relational covenant they've got with God, until the birth of Christ, there is dead silence. God actually doesn't send any more prophets for 400 years before Jesus is born. And we're going to read the story of Simeon, who's in this long line of waiting, generation after generation after generation of waiting to God to speak. Now, we know, because we're on the other side of this story of history, that God not only just doesn't send another prophet, but he sends his only son. So God does more than speak. He actually sends what Israel was waiting for, the messianic hope, the one that would deliver, the one that actually carried the anointing to bring all of God's people back into right relationship and extend that to the Gentiles, as we'll read. Luke actually makes that point in his story here. So if you've got your Bibles, it'll come up on the screen behind me. But I also want you to read it if you have a translation or a preferred translation on your um, phone or tablet. Um, I still like to write in the paper one. Um, I want you to follow your own preferred translation as well. But let's read it together, shall we? We're going to read from Luke chapter 2. And um, we're going to start from verse 21. So Jesus is already born, and you can see right here, Luke says, on the eighth day, 
When it was time to circumcise him, that's Jesus, so Jesus had to be circumcised like every other Jewish male, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. That's a reference to when the angel visited Mary, told her she would have a son and what to call him, to call him Jesus, that is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what, it, that's what the word means, the name means. Verse 22, we actually have a jump in time here between verse 21 and verse 22. We're now about 40 days. Jesus is around 40 days old. The text doesn't tell us that, but what it talks about, the purification that Mary has to go through and then the dedication of the firstborn son in the temple, that happened 40 days after a birth. So verse 22, when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, so, so Mary's been purified, Joseph and Mary took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So they're following their Old Testament laws. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. This is another law they had to follow. They had to actually offer their firstborn son. And it says in Leviticus, there's a quote here, they can give a pair of doves or two young pigeons. It's only a part quote. They could actually give lambs as well. But poorer families were allowed to give a smaller offering. So most theologians think that Joseph and Mary weren't well off in any way formal or, you know, because of the way, the way Luke tells us what offering they gave to dedicate their firstborn son to the Lord. Um, and that was all after the exodus out of Egypt. That was the law of the Lord. Now we get to the... the we've t Luke's told us he's been circumcised, probably happened at home, but now they make their way to the temple in Jerusalem to make their offering and to give Jesus back to God as their firstborn son. Verse 25. Now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon he was a righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consecration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, so the Lord's anointed one. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents, that's Joseph and Mary, brought the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, so that is to dedicate him to God. Simeon takes him into his arms and praising God says, and this is like a song, it's a song of worship and praise. Sovereign Lord, you have prom uh, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles, so that's us, non-Jews, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he says to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus still does that today, by the way, causes the rising and the falling of many, and our, our thoughts or our hearts are revealed. And then he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul too. And that's, theologians believe that's a reference to watching her son die on the cross. 
So here we have this character called Simeon. And you know, why we're, why we're waiting for our God to act on our behalf in our personal lives, you know, we, can, we live in a very, well, we live in a culture that distracts us all the time. There's a whole range of things we can do other than actually spend more time with God while we're waiting. We might be already frustrated because we're waiting. We might be um, a little bit annoyed with God because we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. But our culture actually presents to us a whole range of things that we can fill our time with and we spend less and less time talking to God about the thing that's on our heart or the things that's, that we want him to intervene with. And one of the things I have to be careful of in my life is not allowing all the distractions of my culture. You know, think of all the things that you can do. You can jump on Facebook while I'm preaching because, you know, probably not preaching that well. So, you know, that's a bit boring. Is your family like mine? You all get, my extended family will get together for dinner and probably 80% of them are on their phones. Is that, does anyone else have a family like that? No, no, it's a couple, a couple of people. You just don't want to admit it, right? You can be distracted by, you know, digital streaming these days. You know, you can binge watch, you know, so you don't have to talk to God that often anymore. There's plenty of things for you to fulfil your time that sort of feeds your frustration with God because he's not acting as quickly as you're, you're, you thought he should. And so I, I want to challenge us to be careful about what we do in the waiting because we all have to wait. It's part of living. And, in fact, God is teaching us things in the waiting that you can't learn any other way. And we may not want to wait and we may prefer to learn them a quicker way or a different way, but it's not how God often works. Again, the Bible is full of stories of men and women that were chosen by God, following God, but had to wait long, long periods of time before God acted. But it formed them. It did something within them that made them the champion of faith that we often read about in the end story. But it's very easy to overlook the waiting they had to experience and the, and the emotional frustration that went with that waiting. Now, Simeon is one of those people. He's waiting. Now, Simeon didn't have Facebook, Netflix, Google. He had none of that. Um, it's interesting, you know, I was... I don't know if you've heard this phase. Of new, there's a sort of new phrase around all the digital media stuff that we can do today. They call it the attention economy. You heard that phrase? Attention economy. So that is where you can be distracted at any point where you think you're bored or had enough of something. You can jump on some device and do something to keep your imagination running. But it's interesting that that in research, some psychologists are saying now that really our creativity, our imagination, even our sanity is being hijacked because we, we are forced into this digital age of an attention economy where there's many groups trying to grab your attention all of the time and force you to do things with this limited time you have in a day and the limited attention you can actually, the emotional attention you can give to something. So... Um, I was reading a, a survey, a recent survey actually just done in November this year in Australia about distractions at work. And uh, they say there's sort of two big distractions at work. One of them is that you struggle with the environment. So there's noise, there's machinery, there's conversations in an office, um, or there's not the right tools to do the job. 
um, the, you know, your computer crashes or there's not the right tools in the, on, the, on the shelf to actually do the work you, you're employed to do. But there's another one where you actually just distract yourself. You can pull out your phone and you can actually just do things online at any point that you want to when you think you've got a spare moment. Another survey was done actually this year about the way we drive. You may not want to hear this. This is an Australian survey. They surveyed Victorian and New South Wales drivers. They actually, they put, I think they put cameras in their car and just watched them. They were part of a, a study. Over 400 people. They found that nearly two million, over 2 million kilometres that drivers are distracted 45% of the time. They're texting, interacting with their phones. It makes up 3.5% of their distractions and every time they were distracted, they used 94 seconds on average of being distracted, not watching what they were doing as a driver. Only 5% of drivers did nothing and concentrated on the job of driving. I won't ask anyone use your phone while you're driving. We won't ask that one. Do you know in Australia we are the fourth largest user of mobile devices worldwide? Number four. In all of the world, we're number four. With 84% of Australians actually owning a phone, and um, they say, again, another recent survey, in Australia says most of us check our phones as many as 130 times a day. So just put your phone down for a, little, for a few minutes now. You'll have plenty of time to do it later. That is five times per hour over 24 hours. Now, you're not awake 24 hours. So that, let's say sev take seven hours away for a sleeping. That means you're checking your phone seven and a half times a minute sometimes or in an hour, seven and a half times. So distractions are everywhere for us. And I think they in the, the problem is they impact our relationships. They impact our relationships at home. Do you think these distractions impact our relationship with our God? We spend less time talking to him, reading what he wants us to learn, applying things into our lives that will actually have a bigger impact than anything that Google can tell you. Your Google Assistant won't tell you things that God wants to tell you. But because of our frustration in the waiting with God, sometimes we're just not giving him our attention anymore. Now, God gives us hopes and dreams in all of our lives, corporately, as a church, we have a vision. But individually, God's giving you certain things that, that he's told you he wants to do in and through your life. But the waiting for those things to come about means that sometimes, well, he doesn't tell us the overall exact plan of how it's going to happen. Certainly in my life, I've never told me his exact plan about things he's told me he wants me to do. But it's actually trusting him and talking to him and being in a relationship with him, keeping the distractions a little bit at bay so I can have my still my ongoing relationship with my God. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's the one that sits at the right hand of the Father and controls all things and is in relationship with me. His spirit lives in me. But if I'm distracted, I'm not listening to his spirit. I'm listening to a thousand other voices implicating or telling me what they think I should think, believe, behave, act and feel. So today I want to encourage you around what you think you're waiting for because Simeon actually had to wait. It's interesting when we read the text, Luke clearly tells us, now remember Luke is in the same generation that of everybody who knew Jesus personally. So Luke's not just writing because he's heard it third or fourth hand. 
he's actually travelling with Peter. He knows Paul. He knows all the apostles. So, in fact, if you read the very first, you know, five sentences of Luke's gospel, he actually says there's already been accounts of Jesus being written, but I've undertaken a careful research and study to write out effectively what those who live with Jesus know about him. So this is a careful presentation by Luke for his generation, but now for us as we read it, about this story of Simeon that only appears in Luke's account. That Simeon's been waiting 400 years. His, his, his predecessors have been waiting for God to act and move. And yet, personally, we know Simeon has been promised that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Or the way Luke writes it is the... the um, well, let me read the exact phrase because it's probably not a phrase that we use very often, the consolation of Israel. Now, literally, that's what Luke writes. But the meaning of it is the messianic hope, waiting for the anointed deliverer from God to come. That's the literal meaning of the consolation of Israel. But what happens is Simeon somehow gets told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw this, mess, this Messiah. So when, when I was studying this and reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, well, that was pretty lucky. How on earth did Simeon win that one? How was he chosen by God that the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, you've been waiting 400 years as a nation, but you personally are not going to die until you see the Messiah. How did he deserve to be chosen to be the one that the Holy Spirit says that to and still continues to wait. Well, I think there, there are two things I'm going to point out in the text that I think, again, Luke is trying to tell us, but Simeon, Simeon is not, he doesn't just sort of, this is not blind luck or God sort of picking someone out of a crowd at random. Simeon has a certain characteristics in his life that actually God chooses. He may have missed it, but... There is two things here that Luke tells us about the way Simeon's living. So let me tell you the first phrase. Here's the first one. I'm going to give you two. Number one, the word is righteous. If you look again at verse 25, it says that Simeon was righteous. Now, in English today, for you and me, when we think of the word righteous, we probably think of someone who's religious, someone who's holy. You know, we might think of um, some holy order, like, you know, monks, nuns, people who dedicate themselves to service to God and separate themselves from the rest of society. Now, while that's admirable, that's actually not what that word means. We may have sort of given it a new meaning because when we, I don't know if you ever refer to someone as they think they're righteous, it can almost be a form of speaking down of someone like they're self-righteous or they think they're better than us. But in actual fact, when Luke tells us that Simeon is a righteous man, Luke has this particular meaning in his head that's not our meaning in English. Now, the word righteous that Luke uses in the language he wrote this gospel in, in this old-fashioned Greek language, actually means literally this, someone whose thinking, feelings and behaviour is totally dictated to, by God. That's what the word righteous means. It's not about piety. 
It's not about self-righteousness or being better than anybody else. I think the reason God spoke to Simeon through the Spirit and said, you won't die until you see the Messiah, is because in his waiting, he remained totally dedicated from his heart to following God, even though he had not seen the deliverance of Israel. At this time, Israel's being ruled by an invading force, the Romans. They'd also been, in that period, they'd been taken over by the Greeks before that. You know, they've got a long history of a lot of strife and trouble as a whole culture. And God's promised to deliver them. And so he's in this long 400-year period of waiting. Well, it's not by chance that God chooses him. It's because it's how he's waiting. He has a characteristic that God looks for, and that is a person of heart. Not following God out of duty. Not, oh, you know, I have to be righteous. I have to be religious. I have to do or say the right thing in front of everybody else because my whole culture follows Yahweh, so I better fall into line. I can't be you know, sort of the odd one out, they'll persecute me. That's not in Simeon's mind. Simeon is a man who actually says, I give God my whole life. My thoughts will be concentrated on him. My feelings will actually be focused on him. And the way I live, my behaviour is actually going to be all around him. That's why he's going to the temple. Even when you read it in the story, when Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus in to dedicate him, Luke's very careful to tell us the Holy Spirit moves on Simeon to get him into the temple. It wasn't a random thing, but it's because Simeon has the character, or probably the better word, he has the heart after God. So God's not interested in, in religiosity as we understand it or, or the way that we often see people who would maybe refer to themselves or think of themselves as being righteous. This is a man of passion. He's passionate about his God. And so his whole life is consumed with doing what God wants him to do, even though he's living a lifetime of waiting. While he's waiting, he's living that life. There's no wonder God chose him to be the one, not to die, and to be a witness that this baby, this infant baby that he takes in his arms, is the messianic hope. He had the heart for it. He had a heart after God. This is not religiosity. This is about him following God from here. And there was nothing pretentious about that, but he's doing it while he's waiting. While the whole nation's still waiting, he was living a life where all of his thoughts, actions and behaviours were about loving his God from here. Not just up here because it's the right thing to do, but from here. The second thing that Luke tells us, the second characteristic, is the word devout. And now again, that, uh, that word in and of itself, <laughs> uh, when you think of someone devout, you know, when I first was, was reading this story and that word jumped out at me, I'm thinking, you know, if you've seen Monty Python, but you know the monks that whack themselves in the head? You know, like you, you have this sort of idea of someone who's, um, again, probably separated from the rest of culture because culture is evil, sinful, infectious, and so... You know, we think of the word, you know, when you think of those two words together, devout, righteous, we think of someone like that. But again, Luke has not that in his mind as he writes these words when the Holy Spirit inspires him to write the account of this story between Joseph, Mary and Simeon. It's not devout as we understand it. That word that Luke uses, in English it's translated as devout. But it literally, it's sort of like it's actually got two sides to the meaning. 
One of them is that you grab hold of something completely. So I'm pretty devout when it comes to food. Grab hold of that completely, particularly over Christmas. Yeah, you can receive that one, Jordan. That's a good word. He's devout because, because he's, this is the way I read this text. When I looked up the meaning of these words, God chooses him because his thoughts, feelings and actions are totally from his heart. He's following a God who is still waiting to act on his behalf. But he's devout, that is, he's embraced God. He has a passion, is the best, probably the better English way of saying or explaining this idea of being devout. It's not being separate or reserved or away from the rest of the world that we live in. It's actually embracing something with your total being. And the other side of this meaning is that you do it because you have such love and respect for God. It's like a clamp, this word. So you grab hold of God well, but you're doing it because you have such, such a respect or reverence is probably an old-fashioned word for God that in the waiting, he's grabbing hold of God with everything he's got. That's why God chose him. It's not some random choice. He's exhibiting how to wait. When we all have to wait, this is the lesson that we should take from this man's life. That's why I think the account is in our Holy Scriptures is he is the, the best example of how to wait when you're still year after year after year waiting for God. Now, some people say that Simeon was an old man. In fact, if you look at any um, Renaissance or paintings from the Dark Ages about this story, they picture him as a, a very old man. But Luke doesn't actually tell us his age. It's just the assumption because he says in his opening statement as he praises God holding the infant Jesus in his arms. You know, you can take me now, Lord, because I've seen the Messiah. But we don't know actually how old he was. He might have been only in his 30s. He could have been in his 20s. We really don't know. But what we do know is he knew how to wait for God. And that's the lesson. If you, if you, when you leave here today, whatever you're waiting for, I hope, I hope you get encouraged and strengthened by the Holy Spirit by seeing that this righteous or devout type of waiting, again, not religiosity, not pious, but this whole idea of embracing God with you, all of your thoughts, let him dominate your thinking, not all your distractions, not what the world tells you about how terrible it is to wait or that you shouldn't wait, you don't deserve this. We all have to wait because here's the thing, when God acts, it's always in the right time. Now, it's definitely not my time <laughs> and it's probably not in your timing. When God acts. It wasn't in Simeon's timing. It wasn't in the nation of Israel's timing. They hadn't heard from God for 400 years. But when God acted, everything changed. It was God's timing. So, you know, my understanding is even though I get frustrated in the waiting, God always arrives on time. I, I, I don't understand. I'm not God, so I can't fathom, comprehend or understand why he makes us wait, what he makes us do while we wait. So I think here's, here's where I, I want to finish up. I think the problem is we focus on the answer that we're waiting for God to act on, on our behalf. Our focus is the solution. We think the solution will change everything. But I wonder whether God is saying, well, hang on, Greg, in your life, the best thing I can do is make you wake a bit longer because I'm going to do some more things in you before you get the solution. So you think the solution's going to save you, but in actual fact, I'm going to change you first. 
I think that's what God does. And again, there's plenty of Old Testament, New Testament stories of waiting, waiting decade after decade. And again, I think some of us are in the waiting at the moment, but it's, it's about how we wait is more important than getting the answer that we're demanding from God. It's actually saying, okay, God, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to follow you with my thoughts, my feelings, my behaviours. You being here this morning is a way of you pushing out the distractions our world gives us and actually being devoted or sticking with God and embracing him with passion from your heart, even though you're waiting. So it's how we wait that's more important than what we're waiting for. And that's what we see in this man's life. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to bring this to a close. Because three times Luke tells us about the Holy Spirit in Simeon. And, you know, the Spirit of... This is before, you know, we live in post-Pentecostal era. That is, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, you can read that account. But it hadn't happened when, when Luke writes this account about Simeon. There was no Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ at this point in history. And yet three times Luke tells us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Because what he wants you to know is even though you can get frustrated in your waiting, sometimes it's painful to wait. There's a lot of tension in the waiting, but God's always with us in the waiting. So the Holy Spirit tells him that he'll see the Messiah. The Holy Spirit moves on him to go into the temple. This is a man who's following God, and so his relationship with God is spiritual. It's not dictated by the circumstances of lack or waiting. It's dictated by the relationship he has with his God. And so I want to just close your eyes for a moment. For those of you who raised your hands before, I want to pray for you in particular. And even if you didn't raise your hand, but as you've been listening to the story of Simeon and what, we look, what we've learned from this man who's really walking in the Spirit in his relationship with God because his focus is more on God than what he's waiting for. But I want to pray that that's what you take, that the Spirit depositors in your heart today, in your thinking, your feelings, the choices you make, that you will fully embrace God from your heart with passion because that's what Simeon was living in his waiting. The fact that you exclude all other distractions and show up to meet with God or to pray or to talk with God or to read His Word or to come to church this morning. Do you know what you're actually doing? You're saying, God, I'm dependent on you. I'm vulnerable. I need you. You're saying to God, I want to hear your voice. You're saying to God, you have to keep guiding me. I'm still waiting. You're saying to God, I can't, I can't do this life without your presence. The fact that you pay attention to God, whether it's 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, is a successful act of saying to God, you're God and I'm not. I can't live this life without you leading me by your Holy Spirit. So many things become actually insignificant when you pay attention to God. The things that you think are important actually begin to lose less weight. So don't live life on the run, busy, 
Don't live off just my teaching or the teaching of others. Spend time talking with the one who's going to answer your prayer at some point. Don't experience Jesus just in your head, but know your God from your heart. Don't have a one inch deep spirituality, but intentionally pursue Jesus every single day. Give him some undivided attention. Don't let your waiting develop into a frustration or a bitterness that takes you away from the very God who's working in your life every single second that you breathe. Don't be in a state, a state of partial inattention. But give God your full attention today, tomorrow, Christmas Day. Just stop for a moment. Father God, I pray for every single person who's waiting for something that you've spoken to them about, Lord, myself included. I think of my family. I think of all the families and the people that are represented across our church here today and even across our network of churches. We're not very good at waiting for you, God. Sometimes we've stepped in and we've taken control and I'm asking you to forgive us, but help us not to take control, not to manipulate in the waiting, no matter how long it takes. We, we understand at one level, Father, that your own sense of timing is better than ours. But sometimes it's just so hard to walk that path because we think our timing would be better. Father, answer everyone's prayer according to your will. My prayer, every prayer that's going up right now, for all of you who are waiting for something, you know that you're waiting for God. The greatest biblical truth is that we trust God no matter what we experience. We're in relationship with God no matter what we think we're missing out on. We trust God not just when things are great, but when we are waiting month after month, even year after year, because the Lord is the one that vindicates and acts on our behalf. He has promised He will never leave us or forsake us. So Father, may Your Holy Spirit minister into our lives. As we celebrate Your coming, Jesus Christ, Your obedience to come to this earth, we think of You as an, as an infant, that's the images we see around us, but we know you're the risen Saviour, not just the crucified Christ, but the resurrected Saviour, the one that death could not hold down, the one that the enemy could not defeat. And it's in your victory that we live today, Christmas Day, every single day, because your Spirit lives in us. So Father, as we wait for the answer of, of the prayers that we have in our hearts and have cried out to you, we live in our victory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Just take your seats for a moment. If, um, when we finish the service just in a few minutes' time, I, I really love if you want some prayer, I'm going to be down the front with some of the pastoral team. Um, just come down and I'd love to pray with you. I don't want to hold everybody else um, up just at the moment. I know that time's about to go and many people have different things on given the time of year it is. But if you want to, to know more about Jesus, or if you want someone to stand and pray with you about the thing you're waiting for, 
um, just come down and we'll definitely do that.